0: Of all the reasons one can think of to be disillusioned with the media these days, I think the most disheartening trend, for me anyway, is the fact that content is being tailored to shorter and shorter attention spans. Some news outlets create shows designed to cover all the news of the day in less than 10 minutes others try to hit as many headlines as possible in just 90 seconds. For me, however, the most objectionable example of this trend is the advent of the listicle, which is a portmanteau of list and article, which presumes to illuminate a complex idea with a series of banal statements. The upshot of this overall trend is that staying informed, once part of the process by which one became an engaged citizen, has become, well, just another thing to check off our endless to-do lists. But if we're honest, this impulse to boil complex ideas down into easily digestible bites is hardly unique to our time. There are, in fact, portions of Scripture that seem to follow this trend. As we know, in the Jewish tradition, the Hebrew Bible is divided into three major sections. Torah, or law, which includes the primordial history of God's relationship with human beings and the choosing of Israel. Neve'im, or prophets. there to be a quiz later, by the way. Which includes the warnings and promises of everyone from Isaiah to Obadiah and Ketuvim, or writings, which features, well, everything else, including wisdom literature. And I have to admit, I have always had a bit of a hard time getting excited about this latter category. The books of the Torah and of the prophets describe the ups and downs and let's be honest, they tend mostly to be downs, of God's relationship with human beings. We read about our failure to honor the image of God in ourselves and others, but we also read about the persistence of God's love, God's relentless pursuit of a relationship with us despite our flaws. When compared to this sweeping story of grace and redemption, wisdom literature can seem... Well, anodyne, tedious. A series of fortune cookie maxims designed for short attention spans and divorced from any deeper understanding of God's relationship with God's people. Now, Ecclesiasticus, the reading that Dr. Lawler read this morning, is not properly numbered among the ketuvim, the writings of the Hebrew Bible but it does share many other features with biblical examples of wisdom literature. And the book's most conspicuous feature is that it is essentially a series of lists. The reading we heard this morning is a good example. It describes the person who is considered wise in a variety of different ways. You could almost see it if you squint on BuzzFeed. Now, it would be easy to gloss over this series of descriptions, dismissing them as a collection of vapid cliches. But when you spend a little bit of time with these descriptions, (laughs) you begin to recognize their hidden depth. And of particular note is the observation that the wise person Penetrates the subtleties of parables, seeks out the hidden meanings of proverbs, and is at home with the obscurities of parables. I'm intrigued by this repeated reference to parables. As we know from the ministry of Jesus, parables are a famously subtle and often inscrutable way of getting one's point across. The disciples of Jesus frequently fail to understand the meanings of their Lord's parables. Parables are, in many ways, the opposite of those easily intelligible maxims that seem to populate so much of wisdom literature. And this passage suggests that the wise person is comfortable with the inscrutability and the complexity of parables. On one level, this is simply a way of indicating that the one who is wise understands things that elude the rest of us. The wise person understands the meaning behind parables. But on a deeper level, this passage suggests that the wise person is the one who understands that complexities cannot always be resolved. That a parable does not always have a straightforward or obvious moral. And by the same token, the implication is that the wise person understands that those supposedly easily intelligible proverbs Maybe they're not as straightforward as we imagine them to be. The wise person seeks out the hidden meaning of Proverbs. So far from listing easy sayings about the nature of life, this passage from Ecclesiasticus reminds us that the world we live in is filled with complexity. That sometimes there are no easy answers, but that if we look in the right places, we will find ways to help us navigate the world. One of my favorite examples of someone finding hidden depth in a deceptively straightforward context takes place in an Many of you will roll your eyes when I mention this. In the television series, Ted Lasso. I've mentioned it from the pulpit before. At one point in the series, the title character is playing a high-stakes game of darts with Rupert, who is the closest thing to a villain the series has. Ted is an American football coach who has, for complicated reasons, been tapped to manage a Premier League soccer team in England. Given his background, he is subject to to derision and judgment from the people around him, including and especially Rupert, who happens to be the former owner of the club. In the climactic moments of the dark game, Ted offers the following reflection. You know, Rupert, guys have underestimated me my entire life. It used to really bother me. But then one day I saw this quote by Walt Whitman. Be curious, not judgmental. All of a sudden it hits me. All them fellows who used to belittle me, not a single one of them were curious. They thought they had everything figured out. So they judged everything and everyone. Ted's analysis is striking, not only because it offers a meaningful and insightful way to navigate the world, but also because it reveals that even simple slogans can equip us to wrestle with all the complexities of this life. Now, of all the various medical disciplines, it's hard to imagine one more rife with obscurity and complexity than the field of neurology. Our brains contain trillions of neural connections, and the interplay between our neurons is not fully understood even by those who have devoted their lives to studying the brain. So in this sense, Russell is the kind of person that our reading from Ecclesiasticus describes someone who is at home with obscurity and comfortable with complexity. At the same time, Russell is embarking today on a vocational journey that will require him to be even more acquainted with uncertainty. A deacon must inhabit the gray areas of life and show the rest of us how to approach the world with all its complexities with humility and grace. In my experience, I've found that deacons are the people who are most likely to remind me to be patient with the people around me and with myself. Perhaps most importantly... Deacons are the people who are responsible for reminding the church to be curious. Curious about the world around us. Curious about the people who come into our midst. And curious about what God is up to in the world outside the walls of the church. For at least the last 18 months, Russell has regularly officiated at our weekday services of morning prayer here in the chapel at Heavenly Rest. And as far as I can remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, Russell, he has never officiated without having the congregation read the third song of Isaiah. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has dawned upon you. And for this reason, I associate this canticle as much with Isaiah as I do with Russell. I guess it's the third song of Isaiah and the first song of Russell. I haven't done the math. (laughs) And whenever I recite the words of this canticle, I'm always struck by these words that the prophet addresses to Zion Your gates will always be open by day or night, they will never be shut. Russell, it occurs to me that it's no accident that this canticle has become something of a theme song for you. And now you can never not choose it for morning prayer. Because the job of the deacon is to continually issue this challenge to the church. Your gates must not be shut. Your gates must be open to all who seek the church's message of grace and forgiveness, to all who must be reminded that no matter who they are or how complex their background may be, they are created in the image of God. The role of a deacon is often summed up in an aphoristic way a fortune cookie kind of way. A deacon brings the needs of the world to the church. And it would be easy to dismiss this as simplistic. But as we've seen, it's important to explore the hidden meaning of statements like these. And embedded in this description of the deacon's role is the assumption that the church has something to offer the world. And that something is this. The church offers the promise that this life is worth living. Because this life, in all its complexity, is a gift from God. Russell, your role is to help the church be confident in this truth and to remind us of our responsibility to make this truth known to the world. Russell, will you please stand? Russell, may you have the courage to remind us of our responsibility to keep the doors of our hearts open day and night. May you be filled with curiosity and have the grace to kindle the curiosity of those whom you serve. May you inhabit the gray areas of this life and encourage us to be at home in the complexities of the world around us. Above all, may you be confident in the central promise of our faith, that life is worth living. Because life is a gift from God. Congratulations.